Gun violence in the U.S. has reached a point where it is a public health issue. 36,000 Americans die from firearm-related events each year. Tens of thousands are injured. The medical community calls it a biopsychosocial disease. To label it a disease means it approached from as a disease model. For example, gun violence follows predictable patterns like infectious diseases. We understand the risk factors and therefore can identify how to control and prevent it. Let's dig into it. Welcome to HU2U, the podcast where we bring today's important topics and stories from Howard University right to you. I'm Frank Tramble, today's host, and I'm here with Dr. Roger Mitchell, chair of the Department of Pathology here at Howard University. Dr. Mitchell, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. As you know, I'm always excited to have a good conversation with you. Absolutely. So let's start there with pathology. What is pathology and what made you become interested in it? Well, pathology is the study of disease. Path and ology is the study of disease. And I became interested in pathology. I started my career after leaving here at Howard University, graduate of 1996. I went on to work for the FBI. I was a forensic biologist for the FBI. While I was there, I got exposed to forensic science. I was a forensic scientist for the FBI, and I examined items of evidence that were used in violent crime. And as part of that, I got exposed to forensic pathology. And when I got exposed to forensic pathology, that's when I knew what type of doctor I wanted to be. And so I got into medical school to become a forensic pathologist. And forensic pathologists study disease and injury that cause death. Hmm. So how did gun violence become such a kind of passionate point for you? Well, guns are pervasive in this country. And guns cause the most amount of injuries that we see in this country, second only to motor vehicle collisions. And so coming from communities that I've come from, I'm African-American, you know, grew up in, in communities that had to face gun violence. We found that gun violence was affecting our community. One of the things that got me interested was that I got exposed to what's called post-traumatic stress disorder. And this was in the mid-90s when people didn't know what PTSD was. And there was a concept that individuals that were exposed to violence may become more violent. And that was understood through our veterans. It was also understood through our law enforcement and our EMS providers. But at that time in the mid to late 90s, it was not being applied to communities. And so I actually left the FBI to study violence as a public health issue and thought it was one. And at the time, David Satcher, he was the U.S. Surgeon General, he wrote a book on youth violence as a public health issue, and I got exposed to that. It was a red book, and that came out in the mid to late 90s. So we've been looking at violence as a public health issue for, for quite some time. Talk about this disease modeling as a, a portion of how to address gun violence. When it was first brought to me, I kind of saw that as a little bit confusing, but as I thought about it, I went, oh, well, maybe this has a lot of validity. What do you feel? Well, you know, violence has an environmental component. It's majority environmental. It's majority learned. And the human behavior has in itself the ability to become violent. We know that, right? It's functionally called the fight or flight. When you're in an environment where you're stressed, either you're going to fight or you're going to flee. And so at its very basic level, the human 
is prepared for violence to resolve conflict. But the rest is environment, right? So where do you feel most stressed? In environments where you're going to be most stressed, then you're going to have more violent interactions. And so we know that there's what we call in medicine the social determinants of health, education, economics, housing, health care, and disparate criminal justice practices. W.E.B. Du Bois lays those out as the major policy areas. And so access to these areas, education, economics, housing, health care, non-disparate criminal justice, and I would add even environmental justice practice as a sixth point that W.E.B. Du Bois did not speak to. All of those things, if you do not have access to those things, you're more likely to resolve conflict with violence. And that happens at a larger community level. But if you have violence in your home, if your home resolves conflict with violence, then you're more apt to utilize violence to resolve conflict and in your community and in your society. So these are the types of things that makes disease very similar because we know that in cancer is not just biological. In lung cancer, the majority of people are, are smokers, although there are lung cancers that are not smoking related. So there's both an environmental and a biological component to each disease process. And so if you understand that about violence, then you can understand it as preventable. So if we give access, right, or, or, or assure access, then you have a less likelihood for violent behavior in communities. So when some people may hear that, they may think that, well, okay, this does that just equal the fact that if you have a violent upbringing that you're going to be violent? I mean, there's many of us who who go through that, but also, you know, have chosen a path of nonviolence. So how how can we understand the difference of what are some of the triggers that that do turn it into the likelihood that you will? There's no absolutes. Right. And again, using the disease model, some people that smoke a whole lifetime and never get cancer. Right. People that eat and drink, you, you can look at them and they're not obese and they don't have heart disease. That holds true across the board. Humans are resilient. And so even those that have grown up in an environment that they have everything, you know, access to everything can still be violent. Right. And violent not only to others, but to themselves. That's one of the misconceptions about violence is that it's only homicidal. Really, the majority of gun violence now over 56% of gun violence are suicides. And by bringing in suicides in the conversation of violence, that decreases the otherism of violence. Mm. Because the individual that's most impacted by suicidal violence are older white men. The individual that's impacted by homicidal violence are younger black men. But if you look at violence across both spectrums, then it's an everybody's issue. Um, that has different solutions. You're not going to solve suicidal violence the same way you would solve urban smoldering violence. And you won't solve urban smoldering violence the same way you're going to solve an active shooter. These are all different aspects of the of a same disease process that, quite frankly, VP, we don't know as much as we should. For over 25 years, there's been a gag order in doing gun violence research in the country. It's called the Dickey Amendment. The Dickey Amendment came out right around the Clinton omnibus bill that functionally said that no federal funding should be used at the Centers for Disease Control or the NIH to study violence and its connection with the firearm. So 
it just recently, just recently within the last three years, there has been funding put into the NIH and the CDC to look at the relationship between violent action and the the access and proximity to the firearm. And so we've lost 20-something years of research to understand violence in community. And so this is a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity for your listeners that are students that are looking for areas of interest and research that we need to bolster. We need to bolster violence, gun violence, and gun violence prevention as a career path for researchers, both MDs and PhDs. I think you've brought up a really good point. And to think about what you're, you know, you're doing here at Howard, pathology, uh, do you see it as a, a solution to gun violence or do you just see it as a, a way to shine a light on what is actually happening? You know, as a forensic pathologist, I see gunshot wounds and whether they're homicidal or suicidal, that cause death. And so I'm the physician that would make the diagnosis of cause and manner of death related to those injuries. And so I think that forensic pathologists have a unique place to play in making sure that we have accurate epidemiological data, public health data, to understand how people are dying secondary to firearm violence or secondary to violence in general. So I believe that we are in a particular position as chair of pathology one of the things that the mandate surrounding Dr. Frederick's uh, work is, you know, understanding equity in healthcare delivery, as well as understanding and teaching the social determinants of health. And I believe that in pathology, we've not done a good job in making those connections between the social determinants of health and the cancer cells that we're seeing on a slide for a diagnosis. And there is a direct correlation between black women that are higher incidence of breast cancer and that breast cancer being diagnosed on the slide by the pathologist, as well as the individual forensic pathologist that's doing the autopsy of individuals with gunshot wounds. There's no disconnect. And so we're trying to raise the next generation of pathology residents and medical students to think differently about pathology and how pathology can impact public health as well as healthcare delivery. So when in the research that you or your uh, your teams or your faculty and students work in, what do you hope the information that you, comes out of the research that you do, who do you want to get that information? Who's the audience for when we find out that there's a problem and what you hope that pathology or pathologists, I should say, you know, help drive what conversation? Well, I'm glad you asked that because the research that I'm involved in now is less about gun violence per se, but more about how properly educating individuals whose job it is to be violence interrupters, how that impacts gun violence. So there are two major initiatives here on Howard's campus. One is the Gun Violence Prevention Task Force, which is a presidential task force, which I'm one of the co-chairs, which we're looking at curriculum development and how do we develop curriculum through within the undergraduate curriculum as well as in the graduate medical school curriculum. And how do we develop curriculum to ensure that we're developing practitioners who can recognize and speak to the issues of gun violence with their patients, but how we can raise social scientists that are looking at this problem and being innovative on how we 
improve access to some of the preventative factors that we talked about in the form of W.E.B. Du Bois' five. And then there is a, a center of excellence for violence, trauma and violence prevention out of the College of Medicine. And there's a series of centers of excellence that are here at Howard University. And part of those centers is to look at the effects of stress in community, as well as the how do we educate violence interrupters in a way that they can be better prepared to speak to community, to individuals that are at risk of engaging in violent behavior. There's a lot of work to do and we we really want all hands on deck and it's a multidisciplinary. So pathologists absolutely is a is not someone you would think to come to the table on this question of violence prevention. But social workers are, criminal justice professors are and students are, lawyers and the law school students are, religion and the religion students are, the public health school is. And so really it's a multidisciplinary approach. And quite frankly, that's what makes it a public health problem. The public health problem is because the solution is a multidisciplinary solution. And when you call violence a public health problem, then you can bring all of those resources to bear within the toolkit. If it's just a criminal justice problem, then you're just dealing with the law enforcement and the criminal legal system. But as a public health problem, you can bring all the community uh, to solve this problem. Yeah, I think that's such a really good point and one that I didn't quite consider before this conversation, that the difference between addressing it as a criminal justice problem versus public health it also relies on the resources that can be brought to the table to address the problem. You brought up a good point earlier and one that I also had not heard, which is that when gun violence in general, that 56 percent of the violence is is actually suicide and particularly toward white men. The narrative in the media all the time is that gun violence is very, you know, restricted to black on black crime and black audiences. You know, when you hear about the shootings and things in uh, in Chicago and, you know, where I'm from in Detroit and other places, that tends to be the narrative that America sees. Have you seen any patterns in the sense of, you know, this being true or why it exists so much in our, our community? And in particular, how does the public health element help to address the black community? And, you know, the narrative around that. Well, you know, you, you talk about the media's depiction of black people. I mean, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. Right? Oh, yes, it is. And there's no doubt that there are more suicides than there are homicides. And so what if they were running weekly stories on all the suicides that happened over Memorial Day, hmm. right, alongside the, all of the homicides and showed the faces of older white grandfathers who put the gun underneath their chin, right? There would be a different response to what are we doing about guns? There would be a different conversation about it. And so having podcasts like these allow for this part of the media to, to permeate. As it relates to a public health issue, how public health can help solve the issues surrounding violence in black communities, particularly urban smoldering homicidal violence is, it's really about access. It's really about access. One of the pieces of literature that talks about the most effective violence prevention activities are surrogate family structures. And what is a surrogate family structure? And I don't mean to be demeaning or, or pejorative, but you know, you need a disciplinary and a father and need a caring mother, right? You need boundaries about what, what you can do and what you can't do. You need examples that are modeled out 
And those modeled out examples can give you a framework for how you to model your behavior. And so that happens in the form of mentors. It happens in the form of coaches. It happens in the form of teachers, grandparents, parents, whoever you have. A reliable, caring adult we know is one of the best solutions to violence in community, even in communities that have all the environmental issues. So you asked earlier about what it takes. Why is it that some in the same violent environment, same poverty-stricken environments can come out of those environments and be successful is you will find that they had at least one consistent caring adult. And even now, I mentor men that are coming out of prison and were in prison, and even those men with a consistent caring adult, and some of the times we're the same age, or I might even be younger, that consistent caring adult is making a difference in how individuals perceive themselves and perceive what is lost by engaging in violence to resolve conflict. So consistent caring adults, but also access, access to those, to those six things, mm-hmm. because that's what we, what we had. You know, me, I had a consistent caring adult and I had access. Some have both, some have none. But if you don't have any, then it's going to be hard for you to succeed. Yeah. What advice would you give to the emerging pathologists right now, whether they're at Howard or, you know, the students and individuals interested in joining? What would you give to them and say, hey, you know, this is the field that you can make a real change in? Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of emerging pathologists. (laughs) Uh, We engage, we, we probably have maybe two per class that may match in pathology. Think differently about pathology. I mean, there's a caricature about pathologists that we don't know how to relate to people and we're, you know, behind a microscope. And that's some what some of what we resemble. But it is an opportunity for you to be a physician scientist, to understand and be close to the basic science and look at tissue and see how tissue causes what diseases are seen in tissue and how tissue shows itself up to cause disease, but it's also an opportunity for you to, to be involved in the clinical care of your patient as well. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in pathology to think about it and, and look at it deeply because it's a, it's a great field to go into. Yeah. Well, I know if you're leading the field and, and being such a vocal face to it has already changed my mindset of, of what could be. And I have a four-year-old that I'm always thinking about, you know, of what he's going to end up becoming in life. And I would echo the fact that having great mentors, not only just in the home, but around in their circles are always ways to help visualize that. So you recently published a book, correct? Yeah. So the, so the book that's coming out very shortly is called Deaths in Custody how America ignores the truth and what we can do about it. That is really the work that I've been doing as a forensic pathologist for much of my career since I was in medical school. I'm looking at violence in and around the criminal legal system, but not just the violence, not just the George Floyds, but the LaShawn Thompsons, individuals that are that are dying from the lack of care within our criminal legal system. There's a way for us to to engage in data collection, and we're not doing it. And I'm calling for, in short, a checkbox on the U.S. Standard Death Certificate that allows us to understand how individuals are dying in the criminal legal system. Excited about what it's going to do. It can be found on all platforms. 
I'm excited to read it. I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast to speak with us. You know, Dr. Mitchell, you're one of my favorite people to have a conversation with, and I love seeing you around campus, and I think it's just an absolute honor to have you as a part of HU community. Thank you for coming out to our podcast, Dr. Mitchell. This is HU2U, the podcast where we bring today's important topics and stories from Howard University right to you. I'm Frank Tramble, today's host. Thank you for listening. HU, you know. For more stories from Howard University, visit our award-winning Howard Magazine at magazine.howard.edu and our award-winning news and information hub, The Dig, at thedig.howard.edu.